point. Who names these people? Holba. Come on. <laughs> Friday, February 16th, 2018, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Molly Quell, contributing editor at Dutch News and professional klutz, and with me today is my fellow contributing editor at Dutch News and Valentine's expert, Gordon Derrick, and Paul Paters, a random student and GIF expert. So did you guys uh, ice skate to get to the uh, podcast studio today? Yes, on the unfrozen canal. Yeah, yeah, it's all very wet. It Don't is the only way yeah. to transport yourself in the Indeed, Netherlands. Indeed, yes, yeah. there are no buses yeah. or there cars. No, no bikes whatsoever. No. So, uh, Gordon, I, I read on Facebook that you've been uh, purchasing a lot of Valentine's Day cards for people. Uh, well, I've been purchasing lots of Valentine's Day cards for one person, yes. which is my 14-year-old son. <laughs> is, uh, he, uh, is he popular? With he bought, <laughs> well, he, he wanted two Valentine's cards, um, and then he, he wrote another one at school. But it, it was actually quite sweet, because he, he had one Valentine's Day card for his girlfriend, and the other one he wanted to send to his grandma. Aww. Aww, that's so, so cute. So, and then I felt a bit bad for suspecting him because he wanted two Valentine's Day cards. <laughs> Did you think he was playing? I, th- I, thought, he was up, I thought he was up to something, yeah. Oh, indeed. Sneaky, I, I, thought he, I thought he had a bit of a, something on the, going on on the side. Oh, that he became a Mormon or something. <laughs> and, uh, and Paul, how's your uh, gift making going? You've been doing pretty good this week. Yeah, you, you were happy with my gift. I was happy with one of the ones from the... Uh, the debate or the the speech and the Zilkstra speech in Parliament. Basically, an iconic photo of Margarita with the hands, yeah. his head in doing his like hands the face during palm the debate. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. While Selstra was crying as a baby. Yeah. We'll discuss more about that in a minute. We will. Yeah, and, and why are you professional cuts? So after famous? the podcast recording last week, I went out for a run and I fell and twisted my knee and then had to like cancel all my weekend plans, <laughs> which was really annoying. And how did you twist your knee? It just fell. Just, just took just a step off awkwardly. the curb wrong because you, I'm an idiot. You, you didn't yeah. see where the Road um, no. and the no. pavement uh, no. separated. No, it's very yeah. confusing. And the canal Perhaps. because you were running on the road. Right, yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you were actually always. on the skates. Yeah, running. I was yeah. on the skates yeah. running, yeah. of course, as you do. So uh, we have a lot of uh, news stories that we can't cover in this, uh, yeah, this week's episode because it has been such a busy week. It's been uh, a really busy week. Yeah, there's been so much news. Uh, yeah, we can't even tell you about um, the president of Georgia or the former president of Georgia seeking asylum in the Netherlands now. But it's been most busy for uh, Hermine the cow, who mm. was finally uh, captured and then taken to a cow retirement facility, which is not a euphemism for a slaughterhouse. It's, it's an actual cow retirement. So it wasn't a busy day for the cow. I suspect the, the capture part of it was quite uh, yeah, busy. So yeah, she's yeah. now got a well-deserved uh, vacation. She's now kind of chilled, chilling out in Friesland. Yeah, yeah. hanging out. Yeah, we're all, yeah, it's an grass. actual home of cows. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the parliament's been busy with uh, declaring that the Ar- Armenian genocide was in fact a genocide. And they debated the referendum law. So DCC6, which has always been the party off referendums, have now, are now trying to steer through a law to abolish a referendum. Um, and they've decided that we can't have a referendum on whether or not this law should be abolished. Yeah. And now someone's going to go to court and say we should have a referendum on whether or not to abolish the referendum law, which the government will then ignore and go ahead and scrap the referendum law anyway. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> that's, that's that's a pretty a, good that, that's summation. Some don't love it. So that's all the. That's this, is all our, the this is our this is our this is our new uh, uh, this is a new part of the podcast. Gordon's uh, <laughs> Gordon's quick Gordon, takes. Gordon predicting the future. Yeah. So this week we'll tell you why the Dutch foreign minister stepped down, bring you the story of an eagle versus seagulls, and inform you that your organs now belong to the government. In the discussion, we ask if smoking should be banned in public places. 
Foreign Affairs Minister Halbe Zelstra resigned on Wednesday after the Volkskrant revealed Zelstra lied about attending a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Zelstra claimed on several occasions, most notably in a speech at a VVD party convention in 2017, that while working for Shell, he was present at Putin's Dasha, where he supposedly overheard the Russian president talk about Russia's expansionist ambitions. In an interview with Volkskrant, Zelstra admitted he wasn't present at the meeting, but insisted the substance of the story was true and that he simply borrowed the story from a source he wanted to protect. The Tweede Kamer called the Foreign Minister and Prime Minister Mark Rutte to Parliament to explain the story, but before the debate could start, Zelstra offered his resignation in an emotional opening speech. As the debate carried on, Mark Rutte confirmed Zelstra had told him about the lie two weeks earlier, but he thought Zelstra could carry on because he only wanted to protect the source. PVV leader Geert Wilders said in the debate it should have been Rutte's constitutional duty to inform the Tweede Kamer about the lie. And because he hadn't, Wilders called for a vote of no confidence, which Rutte survived by 43 to 101 votes. The scandal is another episode in the worsening Russo-Dutch relationships. The Netherlands accuses Russia of being involved in taking down flight MH17 in 2014. And more recently, Dutch intelligence agencies unmasked a Russian group that hacked the Democratic Party in the United States. And Home Secretary Kaisha Olongren warned for Russian interference in Dutch democratic processes and the spread of Russian fake news in the Netherlands. What exactly did uh, Zelstra claim that Putin had said? Well, according to Zelstra's story, Putin uh, would have said that it's Russia's ambition to re-establish the so-called Greater Russian Empire. And that's a Russia that includes uh, Belarus, the Ukraine and the Baltic states. And Zelstra quoted Putin as saying that also Kazakhstan was nice to have. And uh, But it was later revealed that Zelstra uh, well, was in fact not present at Putin's Dasha. But he felt he needed to tell the story uh, nonetheless because of the geopolitical impact of Putin's words. Uh, but Zelstra came into real problems when this source said that Zelstra Zelstra had misinterpreted the story and that Putin was uh, only talking about uh, Greater Russia in an historical context. Yeah, and because Zelstra didn't wasn't actually there, he, he couldn't know whether the context was to those comments. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it was all sorts of problems. And there were kind of doubts about Zelstra's qualifications when he was first appointed as foreign secretary in October. Yeah, that's true. Um, well, Zelstra, he had worked tirelessly for the VVD party and he was, of course, the party leader in parliament when uh, Rutte was PM and he was also a key figure in not only forming but also holding the previous cabinet together he was doing all the hard work basically it wasn't surprising that for his efforts he would be rewarded with a cabinet position in the new cabinet but uh, eyebrows were frowned when he became foreign minister everybody expected that he would be a social affairs minister and social uh, affairs where it matters less if you're not qualified to be the cabinet well, leader well he had been a a, a undersecretary yeah. of, of, of social affairs before and so when he became foreign secretary uh, people thought well why is why did he become a foreign secretary he didn't have any uh, diplomatic experience and uh, he wasn't uh, a member of the uh, foreign uh, committee in parliament but the VVD spin doctors uh, because of this criticism started to circulate that the stories that Zelstra read all the foreign newspapers and that he traveled a lot but can you see <laughs> Russia from his house? That's really the question. Did he go camping in France every summer? <laughs> <laughs> Very familiar with Belgian roads. Really yeah. an expert on that. But the real showstopper was, in fact, that Zelstra had been to a meeting with President Vladimir Putin once. But now this story 
is not true at all. But it's kind of, I think it's interesting what this says about the um, the state of the coalition because um, you know, this wasn't really a hanging offence as such. It was you know he lied about being in a meeting and uh, then he twisted, put in words a bit. But um, yeah, the, the coalition all kind of came out initially and they all lined up behind him and they supported him and they said he doesn't have to resign. And uh, Mark Rutter had two weeks to get ready for this because the false count had told him that they had this story about Zylstra. So it looked on the face of it, and and yet and and of course Zylstra was one of Rutter's as you just said one of his closest colleagues uh, in the cabinet so he'd be very reluctant to lose a senior minister this early in the coalition and yet he still res- ended up resigning yeah because you know so you kind of think well if, if if this incident kind of incident triggers a ministerial resignation what's going to happen when there's a real scandal how easy is it going Don't to be you think to this hold is a real together? scandal no that's the whole point this isn't but the fact that so, you don't if, think? No, I don't think so. No. In, the, in the wider no. scheme of things, no. no. It, but it's, it, it, a, but it, it's a foreign affairs minister that's yeah. lying about something like this. Yeah, but I mean, I suspect that like almost all of the politicians have done this and shaded these things to some degree. Yeah, but not yeah. with Vladimir Putin, with he's, the country where he spun a story. So many troubles he, with. He, he spun a story and he's made it very awkward. Uh, yeah, and it, it left him vulnerable to in any kind of future dealings with Russia because they would have turned around and said, "Look, this is the minister who lied." So it wasn't difficult. So it was awkward. But I think in, in other circumstances he could have ridden, ridden it out yeah okay yeah. I mean I think yeah. if he was if he was coming from a more qualified position mm. that he probably would have been able to do it but I, I suspect that because he was already kind of sort of a questionable position that it was like well you know this guy not only do we already think he's unqualified and now we have proof that he's lying and uh, all, all other people suggested that because of municipality elections are coming up that that was also a reason to to, to, to let him go yeah uh, there was a danger it could have run on for a couple of weeks and it could have done real damage to the coalition. So again, you know, the, the fact they took kind of early, um, you know, they were proactive in deciding he, he needs to quit and he needs to quit early, yeah. I think maybe tells you that... Um, but it's my opinion that if this scandal would have uh, emerged after the municipality elections, I think he would have resigned then. I think he would then yeah, as well. I, yeah, I agree too. with that. Yeah. But, you th- but you just said that you don't think that this is a scandal. Of which I, I don't think this is an, an, an enormous scandal. I, mean, I, I think it's uh, no. I think the point I was making was that it, it's very revealing that he's resigned over this. When I think in other circumstances he might have tried to hang on to his job. I think that shows that there's, that there's a real sort of sense by Ritter and by the cabinet uh, of the need for really strict discipline within the coalition mm. to hold it together. Uh, because okay. I, I, you know, I think coalition that was on built on stronger footings would have thought that they could would have wanted to. You've got to weigh up. You know, he, he, on one hand, Lastro is a is a senior colleague and is a he's a close confidant of Rutter, so Rutter would have wanted to protect him if he could, but he felt like he couldn't, and I think that's quite significant. Because of the coalition. Yeah. Yeah. In July 2020, if you want to keep your organs, you have to tell the government. Organ donation, the process of transferring organs from a deceased person to a living person who is in need, will become an opt-out system in the Netherlands. The bill, written by Deisessestic parliamentarian Pia Dijkstra, passed the Eerste Kamer this week, 38 to 36. The current system requires people to opt in to be organ donors. What exactly are they hoping to achieve with this? There's a shortage of organs available in the country. Around 150 people die every year while waiting for an organ. Um, Currently, only about 35% of people have registered their preferences for organ donation. So in the event of their death, most people's relatives decide and nearly 70% of them decline to to donate. Yeah, and that's possibly because your relatives usually asked... um if you they if you want to have your organs donated uh, about a day after you've died in a car crash, it's not really good time to no, ask people. No, it's it's a terrible time. It's an to awful make time to ask decision. people, but at the moment yeah. they have no other choice right. because uh, yeah, I mean, you, 
the organs are only good for so long. And are international residents uh, included in this as well? Yeah, so we, uh, Dutch News, sort of called up the ministry because there were some questions about this. And according to a ministry spokesperson, anyone officially registered at a gemeente in the Netherlands will now be an organ donor unless they opt out. Um, so, wow. yeah, that's, mm-hmm. that includes me and you, Gordon. Yeah. It's our kidneys they want too. And, yeah. and, and Truby's organs as well? Truby's organs as well. Hmm. Yeah. And um, so this, this is just going to happen without your knowledge? Yeah, a government minister is going to come to your house and knock you over the head and steal <laughs> Now, the details aren't worked out exactly. There'll be a public awareness campaign leading up to the change. Um, uh, the details aren't worked out exactly yet, but the the law has been accepted by parliament. Yeah, the law has been accepted by parliament. But in terms of the the how you're going to be notified and like that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. they haven't quite they don't have a plan. This doesn't come into effect until 2020, so they you know, okay, sometimes so yeah, to yeah. kind of decide. It, 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 it's become like Brexit for organs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um so they're planning a public awareness campaign in the lead up, um but according to the ministry, all adults over the age of 18 will receive a letter indicating that unless they opt out, they will be considered an organ donor. Um and you can register your donor preference at the donor register .nl website, which we'll link to in the liner mm-hmm. notes, and uh, at your local chemeta and your local hospital. Yeah, and uh, there's been a lot of um, inquiries to the website uh, in, in the last kind of 48 hours since yeah. the law was passed. So as of yesterday, there had been 30,000 new registrations, um, the overwhelming majority to say that they were opposed to having their organs donated. Um, so you have a couple of options. You can uh, you can say that you want to be an organ donor, say that you don't, or say that you want to uh, leave it up to your uh, to your relatives to decide. And you can also specify which organs you want to donate. Yeah, yeah. you can also specify Or you can say you want to donate all organs except for um, certain ones. Yeah. Particularly reason yeah yeah and it's quite i have to say i mean the, the website is my not liver wouldn't be particularly useful no my nobody no. wants my liver no. um the uh the website was quite easy to use I, I i went in and did it did checked it out yesterday and even though it's not in english you can sort of google translate the page and it was, it was yeah, pretty uh, simple uh, i logged on, on this morning and it says it'll take two minutes to fill in um yeah. i think that's a bit of an exaggeration it took me about 30 seconds yeah there's basically three options yes no or let my relatives decide yeah do you have to log in with your DigiDay? Yeah, you do. Yeah. And still, it takes only two minutes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's crazy. Oh. Yeah. After you've, well, yeah, maybe you shouldn't count the login with the DigiDay time. And that. <laughs> well, that's the minute and 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah. The other 30 seconds is filling it in. So, will you be an organ donor, Gordon? Uh, yeah, but um, I excluded my um, uh, eye tissue because I've got terrible eyesight and oh, okay. there's glaucoma in my family as well. Oh, okay, fair so, enough. Yeah. But I think this is, this, is a, this is a good thing in general. And uh, we discussed this a bit last week, um, uh, Paul and I. And uh, I, think, I think the problem here is a lot of people are going to go for what I call the Homer Simpson option in organ <coughs> donation, which is, you know, there's that famous episode of The Simpsons where Homer runs for office and his slogan is, can't somebody else do it? Yeah. And that's the kind of thing I think because people feel very awkward about thinking or addressing this issue of organ donation, they just don't. They put it off and then they don't make a decision. Right. And therefore, and there's about maybe a quarter of people have a real strong moral and ethical objection against having their organs donated. Okay, that's fine. But there's a big group in the middle who just don't get round to deciding. It's a bit of a shame. Well, I think it's terrible to have to say to people who need a new kidney or a new lung, I'm sorry, you know, there's no lung, there's no donor organ for you because somebody felt a bit awkward filling in a form on a website. I am also an organ donor and I am they, they can just have at it as long as they want, although I suspect they're not going to want my liver by the time I'm done with it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Ruth Lubbers, the longest-serving Dutch Prime Minister, died on Wednesday at the age of 78. Lubbers was also the youngest Prime Minister when he took office in 1982, age 43. As leader of the Christian Democrats, he formed three centre-right coalitions until 1994, his first act was to draw up the Wassenaar Agreement, in which employers and unions agreed to a package of wage cuts in return for a shorter working week, at a time when unemployment was 9% and inflation at 6%. 
Lubbers was a pragmatist who specialised in brokering complex deals between opposing parties. At the end of his premiership, he boasted he had, quote, made the Netherlands more boring. And thus paving the way for the worst Dutch political scandal of all time. <laughs> Indeed. One in which a bunch the of bond- people had to resign over a lack of receipts. Over lost receipts, yeah. yeah. He rejected the more confrontational attitude towards trade unions that prevailed in Britain and the United States during the same period, opting instead for an approach that balanced the interests of workers and employers. He also negotiated a deal to house 48 new cruise missiles on Dutch soil in the face of strong anti-nuclear opposition, though the missiles never arrived because the Cold War ended. The end of his term was overshadowed by his public announcement that he would not vote for his successor, Elko Brinkman, in the 1994 election. The decision was seen as part of the reason for the CDR's defeat in the election, which put them into opposition for the first time since the war. Libba's later career was less distinguished. He was blocked by Helmut Kohl for the post of chairman of the European Commission. Apparently he upset Kohl about something he said about German unification. Um, and he made a failed attempt to become NATO's Secretary General. Eventually he was appointed UN High Commissioner for Refugees, but stepped down in 2005 amid allegations of inappropriate sexual behaviour, which he strongly denied. Paul, what do you think uh, was uh, Ruud Lubbers' uh, impact on Dutch politics? Well, I think Ruud Lubbers is, is really the face of the polder model. Yeah. Until the 70s, all the political parties were very idealistic and they were very, they had all had very strong opinions. And after the 70s, they grew somewhat closer together. The, the political field was less fragmented. Uh, and I think Ruud Lubbers is really the face of that. And he, he was very pragmatic, as you said. He, always, he w- was always thinking in solutions and always had... 10 different options to, to, to solve a problem. And that's, the, yeah, for me, is really the face of, of Paul the model, uh, always looking for compromise and always looking to, to, to make everybody a bit happy rather than making one person happy and the rest not. Yeah, yeah, because um, I think at the same time, I think it's interesting in the 80s you had, to, you know, especially Thatcher and Reagan had this attitude to sort of smash the trade unions and make sure that the uh, they never had as much power as they had in the 70s and Libras went a, a different way and he wanted to include um, uh, the, the unions in, in decision making. I think that you can see the legacy of that and that the Netherlands now has still has much stronger social welfare support and social security than um, Britain and the USA. But as, yeah, and as someone who's worked in all three of these countries, I think that the legacy is really easy to see when you yeah. are uh, an employee and that it does it's done very well, I think, for Dutch society and the Dutch economy, this kind of legacy of not excluding uh, trade unions from discussions about uh, em- employee relations. Safari Park Beekse Berge lost its American eagle after he got caught up in a fight with a group of seagulls. Lady Maya, who is the star of the zoo's bird show, flew away during Tuesday's show, which was immediately cancelled after the incident, and she hasn't been seen ever since. Her caretakers are searching the area around the zoo where the bird has lived for 27 years. The zoo asked the public to look out for the eagle, and if you might spot it, do not approach it and uh, do not scare her. Yeah, I think there's a, there should be a film version made of this, Eagles versus Seagulls, <laughs> starring Steven Seagal. Oh my God. <laughs> Maybe the bird just wanted, you know, a little bit of new scenery. She's been living there for 27 years. Yeah. Sometimes you get the itch yeah. to move. You want yeah. you want a new, new environment. Want to see Canada again? You want to see Canada yeah. again? She's going to have yeah. to fly quite a long way to get any different uh, scenery. Yeah. It began with a clean sweep in the women's 3,000 metres when Caroline Astrechter surprisingly edged out the great Irene Wust. But Wust made good by winning the 1500 metres to claim her fifth Olympic gold medal in four games. Sven Kramer also made history by winning the 5000 metres for the third successive games, though he was unable to add the 10,000 metres title, finishing sixth, while the gold went to Canadian Dutchman Ted Jan Blumen. Defending champion Jorrit Bersma took silver for the Netherlands. 
Kjelt Naus won the 1500 metres for men, while Jorin Temurs won the women's 1000 metres, and she could bag more medals on the short track oval in the next week. And just before we started recording, Esme Fisser won the 5000 metres for women, so well done to her. The Dutch have been less dominant in short track, where favourite Shinki Knecht had to settle for silver in the 1500 metres behind Corinne Lim Hyo Yun, and the men's relay team were disqualified. The team had 13 medals by uh, lunchtime on Friday, uh, which puts us on course to reach its target of 15. Yeah. Uh, I didn't even know the uh, uh, relay team was disqualified. Yeah, that was like Schinke Knecht. He barged, barged somebody on the final bend. Ah, okay. Schinke. He's, he's a tall Schinke Knecht. Knecht. Yeah, I think it's really uh, a shame that we are not that dominant on the short track because the short track is so much more fun than it the is. Yeah. 10 kilometers and the 5 <laughs> kilometers speed skating. It's so boring. So, Gordon, uh, what has been your favourite moment of the Olympics thus far? Well, leaving aside all the uh, gold medal performances, Shinki Knecht got in some uh, Korean ophef um, uh, because he was accused of giving a middle finger salute while he was on the podium. He did that it's, before. Well, that, that, that was why he was in the spotlight a bit, because he, he'd, he'd flipped two fingers at one opponent in um, the European Championships a few years ago, and he was actually stripped of his medals then. Um, and this time, everyone's uh, watching him, and uh, he was holding his sort of mascot on the podium, and it looked as if he might be just sort of folding his fingers, so he was sort of pointing his middle finger at oh, the guy who beat him okay. uh, the Korean guy he insisted he wasn't it was just he was just holding the mascot in a normal way but um, the Koreans uh, didn't buy that at all and uh, they all went piled on, on Twitter and Instagram uh, to voice their disapproval um, so so it wasn't as expressive as the last time no it wasn't it was he, he, if you look he was sort of holding his hand upside down and then just sort of pointing oh. with his with his finger okay. uh, towards um, yeah, towards the Korean who, who won the race so, Gordon, is there anything happening uh, outside of skating, or is it just skating? It is mainly just skating, 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 and a snowboarder who fell over. Right. Um, yeah, which is Cheryl Mass. He was, she was seen as an outside contender for a medal, but um, unfortunately she crashed on both her runs in the slope style, uh, finished 23rd, um, and she complained about the high winds uh, in the competition. Quite a few competitors did. Uh, actually, she said the conditions weren't suitable for Olympic snowboarding. Basically, um, it, it was it, it was it was cold and windy, and uh, you know, really, snowy. They should have been having it in summer, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she should switch to ice skating. <laughs> but there was also more opeth because there was some controversy about uh, one of the skating coaches. Yes, it came out this week that uh, Yilat Anima, who's uh, coaching a number of Dutch skaters this time round, but um, last time the false count reported that he tried to fix a race while he was coach of France. He was um, in charge of the French pursuit team who were racing against the Dutch. Um, and the what Fran- exactly was he fixing? Because the French didn't, wasn't going to win anything. No, they, they weren't going to win. They never were going to win. But he wanted to kind of keep the margin of victory down because I think he thought if, if they were humiliated in the race, then they might, uh, it might have consequences for their funding. Yeah, we don't want the French to be humiliated. No, humiliated that would be awful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he approached the Dutch team and said, you know, guys, can you just take it a bit easy in this race? Yeah, And um, they, they declined and then uh, reported him to the Dutch Olympic Committee who sent him a very strongly worded letter telling him not to do it again yeah. it's just like just asking someone <laughs> to take it easy on them like constitutes a cheating scandal the Dutch, at the Olympics I mean <clears throat> the Dutch will just they have nothing to have real scandals over so they have to just like make to- up yeah, half over bonnages and like uh, hey take it easy on my guy <laughs> yeah it's kind of a sort of second, second string scandal exactly yeah. you guys need to work on having some real scandals We'll be discussing the moves to restrict smoking after this word from our sponsors. Do you drive or ride a bike? Are you in the train or on the train? If you're producing text in English but aren't sure of just the right wording, M Squared can help you. M Squared is a digital publications company that can help you with all of your writing, editing and translation needs. They have a combined 20 years experience 
crafting the perfect document from editing books to writing website copy. If you need help with your website text, brochure, thesis, press release and more, contact them at info at msqrd.com. If you are interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. In 2016, a lung cancer patient named Anna-Marie von Veen brought a lawsuit against four tobacco manufacturers that are active in the Netherlands. Philip Morris International, British American Tobacco, Japan Tobacco International, and Imperial Tobacco Benelux. In it, she alleges that the companies have done a, quote, deliberate damage to public health and have lied over the years about the dangers of smoking. The lawsuit is now backed by 21 other organizations, including hospitals, doctors' groups, and the city of Amsterdam. So what's um, what does the lawsuit basically say? So essentially, Van Veen argues through her lawyer that tobacco companies have lied for years about the dangers of smoking. The charges that they are bringing include forgery um, and says that companies should be held responsible for the death and health damage that cigarettes have caused. The Public Prosecution Service is looking into the complaint to see if the tobacco companies will have to answer it. Uh, the complaint doesn't request damages, but instead seeks to force tobacco companies to change their behavior yeah but uh, more and more groups are joining the uh, the official complaint and also the city of amsterdam is involved yeah the city of amsterdam said this week that it was also joining the complaint uh, according to city alderman eric vanderberg we have been trying for years to achieve a smoke-free amsterdam and supporting this court case fits within this they've been trying to achieve a smoke-free amsterdam yeah so smoking Since was when <laughs> so smoking was banned in the country and indoor spaces in 2008 <laughs> Uh, some bars have won the right to operate special smoking rooms. Those are also going to be closed following another lawsuit, an unrelated lawsuit, um, after the group Clean Air Netherlands successfully argued that non-smokers feel pressure to join smokers in these spaces and that smoke inevitably leaks into non-smoking spaces. Other than that, the city has done some pushes to have uh, smoking secession campaigns. There's been some effort on a national level to do these sorts of things as well. Um, and there have been more restrictions on smoking over the last few years. Yeah, so since the smoking ban in 2008, other places have taken steps to restrict smoking. Um, 21 tourist points around the country banned smoking in queues for attractions last year, including the Rijksmuseum and the Efteling Amusement Park. Have these restrictions reduced smoking? No. So prior to 2016, smoking had experienced a five-year decrease in the Netherlands. Now it seems to be increasing. Apparently some of this increase is due to the availability of illegal cigarettes that are either produced in this country improperly or like smothered in from Eastern Europe. Um, so the price is cheaper. Um, so it's a bit unclear. It seems to have a bit of an uptick in the last like two years, though it's been like on this like downward trend prior to that. And that been in the news that uh, also the French are joining uh, a complaint. They are doing a similar thing in France. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah there's there's a number of places uh, over the years that have tried to sue some more successfully than others. Yeah, um, some of the lawsuits have led to things like warning labels on packages and that kinds of stuff. Which yeah. or having an anonymous packaging as well, so you can't actually have any sort of uh, graphics on the on cigarette packets. Yeah, or like there was a lawsuit in the U.S. that led to smoking advertisements being banned and that kinds of things. And then there was a there was a lawsuit um, regarding like not allowing smoking to be seen as like a cool thing to do on mm. like movies and television that was like also a thing so th- most of these lawsuits have mostly been fighting for like restrictions on their behavior which is like the Dutch one does yeah and obviously for a, a couple of decades now um, cigarette companies haven't been able to um, sponsor sport right or, and that, that used to be a very big thing used right. to be a huge amount of yeah, cigarette money, money went into sport so what do you think should smoke- smoking be banned in more places 
I'm not a smoker and I'm like pretty anti-smoking. So I tend to come down heavily on the like restricting this. I'm not a smoker too. And uh, yeah, when I'm sitting in the library and I'm studying and then uh, there, there are two students uh, next to me who are smokers, they, they stand up every 15 minutes to, to, to go out and to get a smoke. And when they come back, uh, uh, you know, they are covered in this yeah. in the cigarette smell and it's really awful. But uh, when you talk to people who quit smoking and you tell them about, you know, that whenever you are talking to someone who is smoking that you actually are smelling the cigarettes then they say yeah after i stopped after i quit uh, smoking i noticed yeah Yeah. and if i knew that i smelled like that then then perhaps i would have uh, done something uh, about that yeah because i'm old enough to remember the days when you go into go to the pub and you come back at two in the morning and where everyone had been smoking and you'd wake up the next day and pull on your jumper and it was just filled with other people's yeah. secondhand yeah. smoke and it was a, it was horrible so we went to a party over the weekend yeah. in a place that that does allow smoking and basically came back and like immediately got into the shower and, burnt and washed clothes. and burned our clothes like they didn't even make it they didn't even make it like past the hallway it was just like just don't even contaminate this because it's so gross last night we went out for a drink at this little restaurant that's around the corner and it's a it's a monument building and the ceiling design is really beautiful but it's like a very typical sort of brown cafe style everything is like very dark brown including the ceiling but it turns out that the ceiling was not originally dark brown. It used to be like oh. this very light colored beige. They've cleaned like one section of it so you can see this. And the dark brown all comes from years and mm-hmm. years and years of smoking. And it's oh, like wow. just so disgusting to look at this and think that like that's what's in your lungs. Yeah. Like yeah. it's awful. But can you imagine that, that that you are on a plane and then that there is a section where you're allowed to mm-hmm. smoke? I can't imagine that, <laughs> that being a thing. I mean, I'm I'm old enough to remember at least in the US where like you had smoking smoking sections in restaurants and stuff. Yeah. And this clean air lawsuit about how uh, yeah you can't have these separate sections I mean it's really true like even when there's separate sections you can still smell it Um, and there has been a building on campus that has a smoking room in it or like if you ever walk past a smoking room in an airport it does not matter like how good the filtration systems are like it it. reeks yeah Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. it's very unpleasant when I was 15 I worked in a restaurant and uh, back at that time uh, uh, smoking in restaurants was allowed as well and I just refused to work in the part where you could smoke because mm. I just couldn't handle it. Yeah, it's yeah. really gross, I think. Yeah. The thing with um, trying to ban smoking is that, you know, as, as we just uh, mentioned, uh, th- 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 there's been a kind of increase in uh, people smoking illegal cigarettes. Yeah. So uh, if, if you try to restrict it too much, then you bring in more problems because yeah. illegal cigarettes presumably are less uh, or even worse for you than real cigarettes. Or I mean, legitimate I, I, cigarettes. I sort of understand the argument. I think that, like, you should be allowed to engage in this activity, I guess, if you really want to. But I think that there is a a question about you know, how much of this should I have to put up with? And I, I as, sort, a non-smoker. as a non-smoker, right? So like you want to smoke in your own house and like kill yourself with lung cancer. Yeah. Fine. But like, you know, I think that this thing about not being able to smoke in the queues for, for places like where you're just sort of stuck, like you can't get away mm. from these people. So the sort of indoor smoking ban, I think I, I support pretty strongly. I like the library at the TU has now banned smoking near the doors, right? So you have to like go much further away, which is nice because like sometimes, you know, if there's a lot of people out there smoking you really have to like walk through this kind of disgusting cloud of smoke like it seems to me that it's like not so difficult that people can walk 10 feet to uh to go to go smoke somewhere where it doesn't bother other people so make it as uncomfortable as possible for people to smoke yeah, yeah. no i think the main thing is uh, uh, like you said that you find smoke for yourself if you really want to but you um you shouldn't be entitled to contaminate other people with your smoke yeah. especially things like you know when you're queuing for a ride at the efteling right and the fact you can be standing there for half an hour waiting to get on with and kids with, I mean, with, with, kid, with your children, with children exactly. yeah and the people standing there you know, there's a dozen people there standing there smoking then that's yeah, yeah that's 
that's devastating for people's health. I think as well, kind of the government's been seduced over the years by the fact that you know smoking brings in a lot of tax money and right. tax revenue. But of course, we're we're finding out the hard way that the cost to public health is very um, high. Is, is very very high, yeah. and probably doesn't uh, you know, isn't compensated for by the money you bring in from tax revenues. Yeah. So one of the other organizations that joined this lawsuit this week was the Dutch Mouth Doctors Association. So not like mm. dentists, but also like people who do like mouth surgery and yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, and they were saying that like you know tobacco is the number one cause of like all of these forms of of cancer of the mouth, right? So mouth cancer and tongue cancer and throat cancer and all this mm. kinds of stuff. And I mean this is like a huge you know this is cancers that like only very rarely would probably exist if it were not for smoking and that it's really a cancer that you only see in people who are around smoke a whole lot. And that's like a huge drain on the the public purse in terms yeah. of, you know, treating people that, that have these diseases. Yeah. So it sort of made me start thinking about like, well, if we know that this is bad for you and how much like money it costs, like why don't, I mean, why don't governments just ban smoking altogether period i mean we we don't let people shoot up heroin like you know standing outside of a bar like what you know why is it that we are allowing people to do you know to smoke like this especially given like how addictive it is which we've sort of discovered you know over the years yeah yeah, but the problem is that people do smoke now and you've created an industry and you've right. created a demand. So just simply taking it away and banning it isn't going to work because yeah. people will just go and buy illegal cigarettes, which are less healthy. And also we've seen what happened when they tried to restrict uh, cannabis use with the Vitpas. It was a right. disaster yeah. because people still wanted to go and buy cannabis. So they did. So I mean, people then go and buy cigarettes from street dealers. Yeah. You know, the, the gangsters would get involved. And it was. <laughs> I should just be allowed to shoot anyone smoking in public with a paintball gun. Like, yeah. So you're not doing serious injury, <laughs> but like it's enough to be annoying. And I feel like that would cut down drastically. <laughs> on the amount of smoking. Yeah, I thought the contrast between, uh, you know, last summer we had the Fipronil X candle yeah. and the his mass hysteria about that, but this really tiny percentage of this harmful ingredient mm. or, or, or pesticide yeah. in, in, in eggs that wouldn't be harmful at all yeah. if you ate hundreds of eggs. Uh, and the, the, the hysteria about that compared to, um, it, you know, people were afraid of buying eggs and afraid of buying cookies and yeah. then you tell them yeah should we ban smoking from public yeah. places no no no, no of no. course not even yeah. though smoking is so much more harmful than yeah. than than, mm. than any fipronil egg we yeah. had this summer yeah so what do you think should we ban smoking in more public places here or make these rules more restrictive so you know you could cities could ban it from in, in public in the in you know in their city centers say i mean is that a thing that like we we think we're going to see in the future that we should see in the future mm. Yeah, I think yeah, I think so. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's common decency not to smoke when you're standing in line with someone for half an yeah, hour yeah. and uh, uh, don't annoy people with your smoking. But uh, yeah, at the same time, smoking is so addictive that some people just can't yeah. uh, not smoke. Yeah, no, I think I mean it's banned from most indoor spaces now, isn't it? And, yeah, uh, and, and also from yeah things like public uh, parks and things. I think it gets a point where, firstly, can you enforce it? And secondly, are you better off, are you not better off kind of investing the, the, the money and the effort in uh, trying to encourage people to quit yeah. rather than just uh, slapping fines on them for lighting up? So I did, so. Um, the first year that I lived here, I worked at the American School in Vassanar, and that's a smoke-free campus. So in order to smoke, you have to like, 
actually campus. physically leave campus, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a hike for a lot of people. And <laughs> I heard, I mean, this is anecdotal evidence and not like something, uh, you know, that's that's been like sort of proven with any sort of statistical. But I do know like a number of people there who either reduced drastically or quit smoking because they, you know, teachers, they can't just go out kind of whenever they want to. Right. They have like these sort of mm-hmm. regimented breaks and you really had to walk probably like 20 minutes from your classroom to be able to physically get off campus and smoke. So I do wonder if we had more restrictions like that. So like, you know, for example, you know, at the TU that you have to be, I don't know, 100 feet from a building or 50 meters from a building or something like that, if that would cut down on, you know, the amount that people are smoking, sort of force them to, to smoke less and maybe then encourage people to, to quit. You know, a lot of times when you go to bars and stuff, standing out front, right, right, like right outside the door, there's this whole group of people smoking. Well, if they couldn't do that, if you have to be 20 feet from the entrance mm-hmm. or something like that, you know, would the people that I know that smoke get up and go out for a cigarette as often? Like, yeah. Make it so uncomfortable as possible. Make it as inconvenient as possible. My mother had been smoking since she was 14, and she's now almost 65, so that's a long time. And she uh, uh, tried several times to stop smoking, but she just couldn't because she was so addicted. And she worked in a pharmacy where you can, of course, absolutely not smoke. So that worked for her uh, uh, to reduce the amount of cigarettes she smoked. But she uh, retired uh, last year, so she was afraid she was going to uh, start smoking uh, more and more. So what she decided for herself that she was only allowed to smoke when she was outside. So she had mm. to go uh, stand in the, in the, in the yard to, to, to smoke. And that really helps for her. Yeah. It, it's, yeah. And I think that's similar. Make it as uncomfortable as possible for you and you... Uh, and people will uh, will will stop will start smoking yeah. less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I suppose as well, it's uh, you know, I think we can all agree that um, yeah, smoking is bad for you, and you should you should stop if you're smoking and not start if you do. But it's the radical all, statement <coughs> of the Dutch news. It podcast. is indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Smoking is bad for <laughs> you. Smoking is really bad for you, folks. Um, yeah, but for as long as it's legal, you know, how far is it fair? Is it reasonable to restrict people from doing it? If it is it ultimately not, you know, you're not breaking any law, and you're not you have, you have the freedom to smoke if you if you choose to do so. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, yeah, but I I mean I do think that like you know I sort of believe as good as it is to dis- you know as good as it is to discourage people from yeah. smoking ultimately you know it's not you know you're not actually infringing any you know there's no law that says you can't do it you know yeah. so you should have the freedom to choose yeah. whether or not whether or not you do uh, uh, even though at the same time you should be uh, encouraging people to, to try to smoke less or not yeah. at all yeah and, and, and I do and I do agree with that um, but I also think you know things like you know there have been cities in the Netherlands like Arnhem for instance that has restricted the number of older cars in the city center right because the mm. air pollution is really bad so there is some like precedents for saying look like we all have to share this air like people have a human right to have clean air to breathe and so like cigarette smoke is bad for you i mean even secondhand smoke is really bad for you um it's not just that it smells bad it's also like harmful to your health you know so i i would advocate for more of these like restriction sort of things i mean things along the lines of like banning smoking in houses where there's children like i think that that's also i mean i you know, I grew up in a house with a parent who smoked. It was it's really disgusting and terrible and like very unpleasant and probably like will have some long term health consequences um, for me, you know, at the end and, and my brothers and sisters also that. So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't I'm not going to be sad if they make people at a bar have to go stand at you know, 10, 10 feet away from the entrance in order to be able to smoke. And I suspect that there'll be less smoking then. The other question is, though, I mean, is coming back to the the, the thing we uh, mentioned at the start, which is the court case, is the courts the right place? to settle this, bring a lawsuit against the tobacco industry. If any place, that would be the place, right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think that they've had most 
of the movements towards smoking secession legislation and this kinds of stuff has come through lawsuits. I mean, mm-hmm. at least in, you know, like we were saying, I mean, in France, but also in the U.S. And, and the, the smoking indoor cafe smoking ban, I mean, this stuff is also coming in through through lawsuits. Like, it seems to me that the I don't know if politicians don't care. Or they're just too beholden to tobacco money or whatever it is exactly. But, you know, they they don't seem to have quite the interest in, you know, banning this through legislation. And, you know, lawsuits seem to be the way to, to go. Yeah, but where's the liability where, you know, somebody... Because ultimately smoking is... I mean, you can allow for the fact that it's addictive and most people start smoking when they're in their teens, when their decision-making abilities are not fully formed. But nevertheless, you know, it's a choice to smoke as an individual. And so you also have the choice when you're smoking to give up. Yeah. So... Where is the liability? Is it on you as an individual, or is it? And this comes back to you know something we touched on organ donation as well. Is it how much you you know should you take responsibilities as an individual for your own health, and how much should it be um, the responsibility of um, uh, of the companies that produce the cigarettes? You know, yeah, can I mean, you I, actually prove liability in that situation I for the tobacco company? I mean, obviously, in this lawsuit, they they do think that they can. Um, the the thing that I think was most interesting about this is this like forgery complaint because basically what they're saying is that these companies have been lying for. years years about the dangers of smoking and hiding the dangers of smoking. And that is not legal, right? That like you do have to, companies do have to be sort of upfront about things like what's in their products and that kinds of stuff. Um, And so, you know, I do think that that's kind of like an interesting inroad. But I think a lot of what we've been talking about is coming at it, not from the smoker's perspective, but from other people's perspectives. And I do think that there is like some space for saying, you know, smoke, secondhand smoke is is harmful and that like you don't have the right to expose me to something that causes cancer Mm -hmm. any more than you have the right to like show up on my doorstep and throw like nuclear waste at it or or something (laughs) like that. But yeah, so I guess we will see kind of what happens with the outcome of this uh, this court case or this complaint um, to see if the public prosecution service is going to force the tobacco companies to comply with it. Yeah. That's all that we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can now send comments, compliments, and abuse by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl but we prefer compliments as opposed to abuse. If you want to help us out, you can subscribe to our feed and give the podcast a rating and share it. My thanks to Gordon Derrick, not really, and Paul Paters. (laughs) I'm Molly Coel, and we'll be back next week. (laughs) 